is so powerful, it would be good to mention it again. With these young guys that are reading scriptures and that are leading songs, we have a good future and a bright future in front of us. In fact, I think that um, probably Walton and Michael and Ted would take no offense in this, and I certainly don't take offense in this, that I believe we've got some upcoming preachers and song leaders that are far better than what we've had in the past. And so that's, that's great about the future of what these young guys are doing. Um, amen, church? Amen. amen. Why don't we bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into this evening's text. Lord, we thank you so much for the excellent song leading that these uh, young men just did. Thank you for the worship that we enjoy as we lift up praises to you in song. Thank you for the, the fellowship that we enjoy as we realize that we have a bond in Christ that goes deeper than uh, all other bonds that this world could ever produce because this comes not from inside of the world, but it has come down into the world from heaven. This bond is Christ and it is something that you revealed to us and now we are seeing his glory. The glory of the one and the only, full of grace and truth, and we get to partake as co-heirs with him in this glory. And God, we are grateful for that and humbled. And we pray that as we read from your scriptures tonight, that we would once again be transformed and renewed in our minds and our thinking and our spirits and in our actions. As we remember the faithful promises that you have laid out in times past, that we have seen confirmed in the life of Jesus and in the words of the apostles. And now we again encounter in our own lives so many times as a surprise. God, we pray that you would be with us and that your spirit would be on us and powerfully present through both your word and your presence among us as we read and share tonight. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and all who agree say amen. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 3 is where we'll begin tonight. And there's a, fan, a fascinating and fantastic little passage here from Paul, beginning in about verse 7 is where we'll start tonight, in which he speaks about glory. And I'm going to read this passage for us first. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. And we'll read this, and then uh, after we've read this, we'll go to another New Testament author and talk about why uh, this is our topic for this evening. So first, this reading. Now if the ministry that brought death, this is the old law, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Theme word? Glory. <laughs> Therefore, Paul continues, since we have such a hope, such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. 
Even to this day when Moses is read, that's again the old law, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen, church? Amen. And so Paul wrote this encouraging word to the Corinthians to remind them that there is something better in store. There's something that we are becoming that is worth sticking around for. It's worth remaining in Christ for. It's worth finding Christ and finishing in Christ for this glory that he calls an ever-increasing glory. And I think all of us, when we read a passage like that, uh, we'll have some moments in our lives where we ask a question of God, something like this. Will I ever experience that glory in my life? Am I ever going to reflect Jesus so well that my face shines with Holy Spirit radiance? Can you imagine Moses' face as he was shining with the radiance of God? As we're told about in the Old Testament and as a remember there in Paul, as he was so in tune in the presence of God, this Old Testament God who was so fearsome and powerful and whose laws were so pure and so good but so hard to keep. Can you imagine being so in tune in the presence of that God that your face would glow like you had nuclear activity going on inside? And Paul says this is the reality, even though it may be internal and may be long in coming for all of us who are in crisis, that we're being transformed into ever-increasing glory, that we're being made into His likeness. And that is a big, big vision that often feels very small and very uh, you know, short and, and slow in coming in our lives, doesn't it? And so Peter, uh, in 2 Peter, was dealing with something like this, some problem like this, where expectations of what was supposed to be in Christ and what was really happening in the world around didn't seem to be quite matching. And so Peter, in, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, which is where we'll turn next, is writing to some Christians who are wondering... You know, how long does this ever-increasing glory take to arrive? Am I going to experience some of this? Will I get to, you know, commune with Christ on this side of the veil? Or do I have to wait until heaven to really feel secure and safe and held by God and like I, like I have something to offer and like I'm holy, like I've been transformed or transfigured like Jesus? And so in the beginning of... 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, This is my second letter to you. I've written both as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall, and this is very important. I want you to mark this down or, or just look at it closely or circle it or highlight it. But look at verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. That's the first one. I want you to remember what the prophets spoke about. What was written in the Old Testament. And, the second thing, the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, I want you to remember both the prophets who, who wrote these holy scriptures years and years ago. And I want you to remember the things that the apostles have been saying right now in your lifetime, which for us is also years and years ago. But he says, we witnessed some things, and the prophets had written about these things, and the 
the place where those two testimonies meet up, the intersection of prophecy and apostolic witness, there are events that will sustain you until you achieve the ever-increasing glory that you've been waiting for, until you experience communion with Christ. The intersection of these two witnesses will be some food for your soul, will, will help keep you going. And he goes on in this chapter to talk about how the people in the world scoff, how they'll laugh at this, how they think it is so long in coming, Christ is so long in returning that the hope of the Christians is in vain. If you want to read more about that, read the rest of chapter 3 later. But for now, turn back to chapter 1 of 2 Peter. This idea that Peter had, that Paul had explained the glory that's coming, and Peter says this is the intersection of where we, where we find the food and the nourishment for that. Peter says the Old Testament prophets and the apostolic witness, he had already spoken about this in this letter. In chapter 1, in verse 16, Peter had already written this. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories, or maybe more literally this should read, we didn't follow cleverly invented myths. When we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, you remember, I got to see some things. Not to make too much of himself here, but for the sake of the witness, he says, I got to see some things, right? And we may remember some of those events, walking on water with Jesus, the being taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the water to wine, the healing of so many various diseases and illnesses, and the driving out of demons, raising of the dead, his own resurrection. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw the ever-increasing glory. In 17, he says, we received, he received honor and glory from God the Father, this he would be Jesus, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. And so here we have glory again, and Peter calls it a majestic glory. And the voice said this, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And of course, that carries us back again to the transfiguration on the mountain, which Peter witnessed. He says this, We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And so Peter says, I can tell you with apostolic witness that we saw this event. This thing happened in front of my eyes. As you may remember, Peter was there. He was even the one who said in confusion, Jesus, uh, it's good for us to be here. Me and James and John were very pleased. Let us build a three little huts for you and Moses and Elijah to live in. We'll build you some little houses. And it says in the text, he said this and did not know what he was saying. He didn't grasp in the moment the glory that was being revealed to him, but later he remembers it and he says, this is something I saw. Peter goes on in verse 19. As if that's not enough, he says, and we... Have the word of the prophets. Remember that intersection we were speaking about. The word of prophecy and apostolic witness coming together. He says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. So something that was written about before has been verified in front of the eyes of the apostles. Something that was foreshadowed, that was cast ahead. Something that was to be 
was seen and became in front of their eyes. He says it was made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Focus on this, Christians. Focus on this when the world asks, how long is this coming? Focus on this when your heart asks you, will I ever be like him? Will I ever be enough? You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. So he says, look into this, right? This written word, this apostolic witness where they intersect. It'll be a light to you until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so there's a great day coming. Amen, church? A great day coming. But it's by and by. It's going to be a little while until we get to the great day and we see Christ in his second coming, when we are raised with Him, when we're transformed fully to be like Him. And He says, until that moment, until this rises, until it rises in your hearts even, until you're able to to fully believe it with security, until you understand it, which I don't think we will until it actually occurs. He says, you would do well to pay attention to these things. And above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. So it, the guys writing the Old Testament weren't thinking, hey, this would be a great thing for me to write. Like, I'll, I'll put down something here that seems really good to me. They were being, as he says here, no prophecy had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they were being led even in every word of the Old Testament, to write the things that would also bear witness to us, that would be meaningful later, the things that were truly from God. And so Peter has a really high view of the Old Testament prophecy, doesn't he? It is not only a witness to what the law was. It is not only an example for us to learn from, it is also a witness that shows us that the things that happened in Jesus' lifetime were meant to happen. And when the two come together, we can have assurance that will sustain us until the morning star rises in our hearts. Until, as Paul said, we're transformed with this ever-increasing glory. So tonight we're going to look at just one small example, one small sample of how the prophets and Jesus do this for us. I'd invite you to turn now to the Old Testament, way back to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to go back to that glowing face of Moses, although that's actually mentioned in chapter 34, but in 24 we could assume it maybe was happening too. So Exodus chapter 24, and when you get there, find verse 12. Exodus 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I've written for their instruction. So God invites Moses, Why don't you come and, and live with me for a little bit? Stay with me on the mountain. That's an amazing invitation that God would say, Come and spend time with me. Again, this God who we so often picture or caricature in the Old Testament as being so fearful says to Moses, 
Come up and stay with me a while. I'll give you the laws that the people need. I'll put them on tablets of stone for you. And then Moses, in verse 13, set out with Joshua, his aide. And Moses went up on the mountain of God. Now notice that he begins going up in verse 13. He's on his way. He's obeying the call of God. He's on the move. He's heading up. In verse 14, he said to the elders, presumably on his way up, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So Moses, concerned for the management of the people of God, gives instructions as he prepares to go and spend maybe a significant period of time with God on the mountain. Verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And so now we see him, you know, continuing to go up in obedience to the command of God. Come up and stay with me a while. And this cloud descends on the mountain. The cloud, of course, had been leading the people ever since Egypt. During the day, they would follow the cloud and by night a pillar of fire. Presumably this cloud wasn't a cloud that gave shade, dark shade, but that cast light. You would do well to pay attention to it as a light in the darkness, Peter wrote. Maybe this cloud was one of those lights in his mind as he wrote those words. And so here in 15, Moses is on his way up and the cloud is covering the mountain. Verse 16, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. Maybe Moses has been walking up the mountain for these six days. Some commentators presume that he was stopping with Joshua along the way for rest and for prayer as they slowly made their way up so as not to rush into God's presence but to come prepared in their hearts. We don't know. But for whatever reason, there is a period between the invitation to come to me and the period when Moses enters and that amount of time is six days. Others have thought that maybe these remind us of the days of God's work of creation. For six days, God made the worlds and everything in them. And on the seventh day, He rested. On this seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So after the period of walking and the period of waiting, Moses is summoned. Come and stay with me a while. To the Israelites... The glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So from below, all they could see was what looked like a raging wildfire. And maybe they saw the small silhouettes of Moses and Joshua as they approached. Maybe they feared for their lives. Maybe they hoped for their deaths because they could raise up some new leadership as they're about to try in the Golden Calf Incident, only chapters from now anyways. Maybe they saw Moses enter into the cloud of glory and wondered, will he come out again? To the Israelites, it looked like consuming fire. But then in verse 18, Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, continuing to go up, answering the call of God, and now into the cloud. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's truly a significant period of time. This story of Moses going up into the glory on Sinai, into the cloud, is of course serving several purposes. 
for the people at that time who needed the law, as Greg reminded us this morning, they needed the law. They were coming out of Egypt. They had no constitution. They had no framework for how they should structure their lives. The law was grace for them. It gave some planning. It gave meaning. And they're about to receive this. And so in the short term, every event, every moment, every detail is about the interaction of God and the people. But of course, in the long term, this story will become a commentary of its own for the people of God. What does it mean to go up to God? What does it mean to be transformed by Him? To be transformed with ever-increasing glory? Can we really have a relationship with God that's so intimate that He would say to you or I, come and stay with me a while? Is there significance that after a period that represents all of our work, the six days of God's work, all of our human toil, all of our wanderings on this life, the constant journey upwards towards Him, the pilgrimage, if you will. As we'll begin to preach in, in March, we're doing a series called Pilgrim Songs. The songs that the people sang on their upward walk to Jerusalem for the festivals. And as we live out that in our life, this period of our work, hoping for the rest with God in heaven. We all want to be invited into that glory, don't we? Will He say to me, come and stay with me a while? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 99. The Jews were well aware of the importance of an event such as this. They thought about it and they talked about it and they sang about it in their worship. And so it comes up many times throughout the scriptures, but maybe most notably here in Psalm 99. And so we'll read this together this evening. The psalm begins, the Lord reigns, Yahweh reigns. The true God, the God of Israel, called by his personal name, the same name that he gave Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh reigns. He is serving as king for Israel. Let the nations tremble, says the second line. All of these nations who worship false gods, pagan gods, gods that go by other names, let them tremble as they realize that Yahweh, the true God, is reigning on His throne. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, which of course represents the Ark of the Covenant housed in the temple in Jerusalem. Let the earth shake at the realization of God's glory. At this truth that He is King over all. Great is the Lord in Zion. Verse 2 begins. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. And then this proclamation. He is holy. God is holy. He is glorious. Just like the, the fire that they had seen on the mountain. They think... God is holy. Maybe this repetition of the phrase, He is holy, it'll come up three times in this song. Maybe that would call some of the minds of the people back to Isaiah's vision. You remember Isaiah saw these two angels that forever were saying back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And I heard a preacher say one time, 
as soon as the first angel got done proclaiming this truth, the other angel looks back at him and says, oh yeah, well get this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the first angel says, oh yeah, I got one for you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah says they repeat it to each other for all time. God surrounded by his little posse of praising angels who just keep shouting out for all eternity, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we look at the earth and we say, really? Because it looks like it's full of brokenness. And I don't feel like I've been transformed into glory yet. And so the second stanza of this psalm in verse 4 says, The king, again Yahweh, this is God, he's mighty, he loves justice. You've established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. So in Israel, there was this belief that God had done what a good king ought to do in any nation. Established righteousness. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And there's the second repetition. The third stanza, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. And so the psalmist remembers that this holy God, this altogether separate God who has his own little band of worshipers, this angelic assembly that is forever around him who needs no other praise, contents himself to speak to people out of a cloud. And why? Why would he do such a thing? They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. O Lord our God, the psalmist continues, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And so they finish the third refrain. And they remember Yahweh, the God of Israel, not as a God who exalts in his military victories, his conquests, in pagan revelry, like the gods around them, but Yahweh, who is exalted because he answered the people because he spoke to them out of a cloud because he was a forgiving God attributes that none of the Canaanite gods were known for proclaiming about themselves and of course the poetry and literature of the Canaanite people but the Hebrew people know there's something about the one true God he glories in a personal relationship in speaking to men like Moses he glories in answering them, their questions. He is holy in part because he forgives them. And these are some of what makes the cloud so majestic. What makes the invitation, come and stay with me a while, so meaningful. Because it's not a call that welcomes you to be destroyed, but to be known thoroughly inside and out to be welcomed, and ultimately to be forgiven and glorified yourself through Christ. 
We'll turn now to Matthew 17. And this will be our last text for this evening. In Matthew 17, we read the story about Jesus' transfiguration that we've been hinting towards all night from Peter and from Paul, of course from Moses in the psalmist. But this transfiguration of Jesus's wasn't expected, was it? This isn't something that any of the apostles were, you know, just waiting with bated breath. Hey James, don't you hope you get invited to the transfiguration? Do you think you'll take all 12 of us or just the favorites? No, they weren't expecting this. They weren't discussing this. It seems almost as if this comes as a surprise to them. As if for a moment that was completely unexpected, that the transcendent glory, the eternal glory, something of the divine is going to break through into this world, and they really weren't expecting this. Oh, sure, they were expecting him to march into Jerusalem and rally an army and kick out the guard, the Roman guard, and start something meaningful and practical. A political rebellion. Jesus is going to be the one to lead the way. And all of the prophecies about how he, uh, he won't even be able to hurt himself, he won't trip, he won't stumble, he could be thrown off the temple and angels will catch him, and all these things that Satan tempts him with. It almost seems that the apostles believe this is the reality of what the Messiah is, though is He is going to be unhindered as He leads us in a military victory, a revolution. And they can't understand yet that His ultimate glory will come through His own death. But this is the topic that they were discussing previously in chapter 16. Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Presumably, all of those trappings of military overthrow are in the middle of that statement. His confession is well meant, but it is actually wrong. Peter says you're the Messiah, the Son of God, thinking that that means you'll lead us in a glorious procession of victory over our enemies. Oh, the statement was true. It was just simply misunderstood. The glory would come in an altogether different and undesirable way. When Jesus begins to tell them about it, Peter rebukes him. No, 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 Jesus, don't talk about dying. And Jesus turns to Peter, and for once he actually calls him the most horrific insult that any apostle of Jesus could ever be called. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, accuser. Get behind me, devil. How can you say these things? You don't yet know what I have to suffer. And knowing that they're going to need this information, this knowledge, this understanding. Something that will be affirmed by the prophets of old, but needs to be confirmed in the actual life of Jesus so that there can be this intersection. That the apostles can see something so transforming that later they will boldly witness to these truths. We begin in chapter 17 and it says this, After six Days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. He waits deliberately for six days after Peter's confession. Why would Jesus do this? We could only imagine 
Unless having read the prophets, we're aware that there was another six-day journey to the top of a mountain of glory. And that there seems to be a running commentary about the creation of the world and the rest that we will enjoy in that divine transcendence and that presence with God when He says to us finally, at the end of our days, come and stay with me a while. Live with me in eternity. Come and be with me. This was our ultimate goal. Not that you would fear, but that we would be together. Jesus waits six days and he took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. A Greek word that we really don't know what it should mean in English. Oh, sure, we know it means transformed or transfigured, but we don't know what it means. How was he transfigured? How was his figure changed we know of transformers they look like trucks and then they stand up and turn into optimus prime they wield guns and swords we know of these things but what is a transfigured what does he look like we're not told maybe on purpose what the whole transfiguration was but we're given a few details His face shone like the sun. His face shone presumably not so differently than Moses' face had shone when he was in the presence of God. When Moses went to the tabernacle in Exodus 34, a passage that we didn't read tonight, but we saw referenced in Paul, and his face would shine with that inner light of having been in the presence of God. And here Jesus' face begins to shine like the very sun itself shouting, screaming to these witnesses, we are in a holy place. We are in the presence of God. Little do they know who it is. And his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. If the apostles were paying attention, as they often were not. This may have been the moment when suddenly their vision was focused in on the reality of the moment. The moment when they started to think, oh, are we supposed to be thinking about the Old Testament here? Or as they would call it, the Testament. Are we supposed to be thinking about how this fulfills Scripture? Because if they had missed the glowing face and the glowing clothes and the six-day walk up the mountain, maybe now that they see Moses, it would strike a chord in their minds. Maybe now that they see Elijah, they would realize there is something happening in our presence that is calling from the dead, from the realm of beyond, back to earth temporarily, all of the law and the prophets as summed up in Moses and Elijah. Everything that was written before is being focused on this moment when we see some transfiguration. And Peter said to Jesus, oh, and incidentally, only Luke will tell us this, that the conversation that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah shared together was about his death. The very death that Peter had just denied 
The very death that caused Jesus to say, get behind me, you accuser. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know yet the things that I must go through to enter into glory. And Moses and Elijah come to Jesus to talk about this death. In verse 4, Peter gets to make his famous statement. He has his moment. He says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. You notice that even though the other gospel tells us he didn't know what he was saying, Matthew will remind us that God didn't even wait for him to finish this ridiculous proposition before the cloud appears. Look at it again. It says, while he was still speaking, Peter is still spouting his misguided ideas. Jesus, let's do it this way. You can't go and die. No, no, no. Get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus, let's build little houses to worship you. You could become like one of those you know, seers that lives on a mountain, and people will come and ask you questions. We'll charge them like a denarius or something like that. You know, you can keep most of it, and we'll all get a little bit, and we'll use it to raise the army that we need. Who knows what he was thinking? But while he was still speaking, so that it would be very clear that nothing happening at this moment was originating in the will of men, but only as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, a cloud appears and interrupts his words. A bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And doesn't it make you wonder at that moment, if you were the other nine apostles standing at the bottom of the mountain, looking up, would you have seen what appeared to be a consuming fire? When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. Like the Jews before them. That doesn't seem right, they're Jews too. Like the earlier Jews from long before them, they see this divine presence and they don't know how to react. They probably act just like you and I would if we saw glowing people on a bright cloud that doesn't throw shade, but that throws light. They're terrified. But Jesus came, and notice how he interacts with them. Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, and don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I would assume that these men thought about this night when they would lay awake on their beds at two in the morning thinking about, how did I get into this life of apostleship? What am I doing all of the way out here in this small little Gentile town with you know, righteous Pharisees in hot pursuit of me, trying to throw me into prison somewhere. I haven't had a decent meal in weeks. I've heard they already beheaded a couple of the other guys. I heard Peter was crucified. What am I doing out here? And they would remember Peter, James, and John that night when they saw Jesus transfigured when they saw prophecy come alive, 
And they would think to themselves, there's yet more people that need to hear my eyewitness account that brings to life the intersection of what was foretold and what was seen so that they can have an answer for their 2 a.m. questions with God. And they pressed on and they continued to testify about what they had seen. The psalm we read said this about God. It said that he answered their questions. It said that he spoke to them out of a cloud, that he forgave their sins. A very personal God is this king of the Jews. And while in the Old Testament we see him speaking truth from the cloud that is engraved on tablets of stone, cold, hard, breakable, as Moses will throw them to the ground when he sees the golden calf and have to start the whole process over again with God. These words are engraved in flesh, in human heart, and specifically in the heart of the Savior, in Jesus, in the embodiment of God, the incarnated Son of God, who is about to have some other engravings in His flesh just a few days from now, in His hands and in His feet and in His side, and a mark that will forever be on His soul that says, you were bought with a price. These words are spoken out of the cloud, but instead of a law or a set of instructions, it says, look at this man, this son of mine, and listen to him. He will show you how to live real life. He will be your structure as you come out of the exodus of sin. He will give you a new constitution that you should love one another. Listen to him. And so later Peter can write with confidence that not just anything that anyone says is true, but things spoken by prophets and confirmed in eyewitness testimony in the life of Jesus, these things are reliable for you in those moments when you want to ask, how long, God? And why am I not there yet? Jesus reaches out to you and I as well to touch us, to say, arise, get up. Stop laying on the ground in front of God, groveling and weeping with your eyes closed and thinking like, what will happen next? Will the cloud consume us? No, stand up and do not be afraid. And He touches you. Of course, this is internal and spiritual but it's better than the touch they received because they received a touch on the shoulder or the hand and we receive the Spirit inside of our hearts. Living testimony. The transfiguration is a good story, but most importantly, it is a true story. It's the story of a moment in which God reminded us that all the things that I've done before were fading glory, and now I will establish a glory that will never fade, one that is trustworthy for all time, that will lead you into ever-increasing glory. And the reason for it, because we're not told what the transfiguration looked like, because we're not giving any explicit teaching except for to listen to Jesus, the reason for it seems to be simply a reminder of who and what he is and that we ought to hear him, listen to him, 
follow him. Amen, church. If you're looking in any way for help from our shepherds or ministers and you want to respond tonight, we'll be happy to receive you down here. We'll also wait and pray with you afterwards if you so desire. We know how often, for all of you, the question of how long can surface. It surfaces inside of our hearts also. And sometimes we wonder as ministers and shepherds, are we really cut out for this? Are we fit for this? Is God ever going to do anything glorious in our lives or in our church? And yet he is. Every time that we choose to listen to him, he increases the glory a little bit. And he'll do it for you too. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and sing.